Welcome to this podcast episode of Narcissists in Divorce, The Narcissist Trap. I'm Dr. Supriya McKenna. I'm a former family doctor, but my life's true work is working with people who have fallen prey to narcissistic relationships of any kind. But I'm particularly busy in the area of divorce. Over the last few years, I've been very proud to become an Amazon best-selling author on the subject of narcissism, and my brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out right now on Amazon, as an audiobook, in paperback, and on Kindle. That's the first book in the Narcissists in Divorce series, and the follow-on to that will be out in the late summer, and is called From Leaving to Liberty. And please do note that these books and this podcast are equally applicable to anyone leaving a serious intimate relationship with a narcissist, whether they are married or not. I also have a book out called The Narcissist Trap, The Mind-Bending Pull of the Great Pretenders. And that book might be useful in helping the people around you who are supporting you to understand more about what happened to you and about narcissism generally. I'm also the co-author with British divorce lawyer Karen Walker of Narcissism and Family Law, a practitioner's guide. And between us, Karen and I have trained thousands of family law professionals in narcissistic personality disorder, including judges, lawyers, mediators and social workers. For further narcissism resources from me, please do visit thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com. And that web address has the doctor fully spelled out. Well, Karen and I are very pleased indeed to be joined by Rachel Oakes and Claire Colbert. Rachel sits as a deputy district judge and she was a family lawyer in a major national firm for 30 years. Claire was also a specialist family lawyer for over 20 years and she's the author of The Witch Guide to Divorce and Splitting Up and The Witch Divorce Guide 2015 and she's the co-chair of the Resolution Parenting After Parting Committee. Now unusually, both Rachel and Claire also hold diplomas in couples and family therapy and together they set up Family Mediation and Mentoring LLP where they offer all types of mediation including hybrid mediation and child-inclusive mediation. And their aim, in spite of Rachel being a judge, is to keep people out of court and to reduce conflict and help people to reach agreements in an amicable way and, of course, to keep their legal fees down. So thank you so much for joining us here today, uh, Rachel and Claire. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, It's going to be really interesting to explore um, the world of mediation. We would say that what um, distinguishes parents where one suffers from NPD is their um, complete inability to focus on what is in the best interests of the children. Ordinarily, you would assume that um, the commonality that all parents would have, even if they are totally at loggerheads over absolutely everything, that they will want the best for their children. And of course, um, Sabria can elaborate on this far better than I can, but um, if they if they do suffer from NPD, they will have no ability to even understand what is best for their child or children, never mind want that as a a desired outcome. And I wonder if you've had any experience of witnessing that and the effect which that can have on the child arrangements under discussion. Yeah, and I think that's where child inclusive mediation can have a really Mm. pivotal role as well, um, Mm. getting the voice of the child in that process. But perhaps if somebody has uh, narcissistic tendencies or has been diagnosed um, as a narcissist, then making them think more 
not about what the the children need or what the children um, are are wanting, but more about how the children will think of them because that reflects back on them in terms of what they are worried about you know what other people are going to think of them and so talking about well how do you think your children will feel about this in two years what do you think your children are going to think of you in two or three years time if we come up with an arrangement where they don't see the other parent or if we come up with an arrangement where their time with the other parent is severely limited or 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 fought over so much that it's a, a shared arrangement that the children don't want so that that's normally the way um, I see narcissism in children's cases come in and, and the way it's it's dealt with. But I think one of the, the big issues is the goal moving again. Um, and particularly for children and children who think they have a plan and then that plan being changed and then it being changed again, that can be so disruptive and it can be so upsetting. And I'm seeing it left, right and centre at the minute with Christmas fast approaching and Christmas arrangements being changed at the 11th hour and extended family suffering as a result of that. But obviously, most importantly, the children suffering. Mm. Mm. But I do think child inclusive mediation and reflecting back, not what do the children need, because that's something that I think a narcissist will find very difficult to think about because they're having to think about somebody else's needs rather than their own. But more, what are the children going to think of you? What are the children going to think about what you've done now and, and how will that feel? Yeah. It's a very difficult situation with that because and this is the kind of paradox um, that we have with, with the way that a narcissist relates to their children because not only do they subject their children to the same abusive behaviours that they mm. subject everybody else to but they also at the same time consider their children mm. to be extensions of themselves so not separate from them. Um, and so I, I wonder with that, you know, um, that approach, you know, what are the children going to think of you? I think it can work with, mm. with some narcissists. I think it probably mm. depends on the narcissist, depends on how they're feeling at that particular time but if they consider the children to be an extension of themselves then they just sort of I think many of them would just assume that the children couldn't possibly think badly of themselves because they're the same person Mm. if you see Mm. what I mean so to me I think I'd be trying to look at it more from the what will other people think um, of, of, of you if you do this to your children that's where the extended family point I mentioned is quite useful because yes. particularly as I say with Christmas coming up what extended family might think of what they're doing and therefore what they might be thinking saying to other people to the children is the wider issue of the, the narcissist ego there of hang on a minute am I doing the right thing here not because I think it's wrong but I don't want everybody else to think what I'm doing is wrong and I think I think also their peers not just family because family to some extent they sometimes think they can just talk their way out of it and explain explain everything away or having established who who is somebody that is important in their life is quite helpful if you're able to do that to then be able to say well what does what would so-and-so think of that if you did that what would they think? I, I do think that would be really, really useful. I really do. Can I go back to um, Claire's point about seeing children in direct consultation? Because I'm conscious that um, many of our listeners may not know exactly how that works um, and, and how and when children might be seen and, and what the process is. Because I, I know when I've seen children in direct consultation, it feels like a huge responsibility to be talking to somebody else's child. I wonder if you could just talk us through how it, how it actually works in practice and what the steps are. 
Child inclusive mediation is a way to try and ascertain a child's voice in the process without giving them the responsibility to pick. So we're not giving a child the opportunity to say, what do you want? You know, do you want to live with mum or dad? It's not that kind of questioning. But instead, what it is, is an opportunity for the mediator to meet with the child if the child wants to. The child has to agree and both parents have to agree. And in preparing for that meeting, I will meet with the parents and talk to the parents about what we're trying to find out, what we're going to do with what information the child agrees that I can feed back. So making sure that the parents are both on board, that the point of asking the child is for that to be factored into their decision making. So, you know, that particularly with a narcissist, that can be something that's making sure that if a child is going to give us some information, that we're going to use that information, not necessarily follow it. Um, I've had children come up with some very magical proposals of how they would like their time spent and we just couldn't <laughs> follow it. Um, and it's letting the children know that, you know, it's part of what mum and dad are going to use to help make the decisions. But preparing the parents for the process, making sure that the children, the parents will take on board what the children have said uh, in some way in their in their discussions. And then meeting with the children to give them an opportunity to talk about what's working, what isn't, what they'd like, what they're worried about. And those might be really practical things. Those might be quite legal things that they're concerned about. And then feeding that back to the parents as long as the children have agreed. I and mean, sometimes children say they don't want me to feed back anything. And so at the end of that meeting, I have to go back to parents and say, well, I had a very nice meeting with your delightful child, but they don't want me to tell you what they said. And that can be really frustrating for a parent. What if a child was to say you're allowed to tell daddy, but you're not allowed to tell mummy? Yeah, so I have had that situation. And part of what I'm doing when I'm meeting with the children is talking to them about how I can try and help, how I can try and improve things for them. And if we're only telling one parent, that's not going to improve the situation because it's going to put mum and dad at war with each other. They're going to keep thinking that what one person thought was right was right, but the other person knows differently. And so I will talk to the child about how I have to feed back to both. Um, And if I don't feed back to both, I can't use that information in the way they'd like me to. And if they decide they don't, don't want it fed back to both I don't feed it back to either and so neither parent would hear what they, what it is that they're thinking but sometimes it isn't actually um, I don't want it fed back to mum it's I don't want it fed back to mum like this and so it's more about I'm really worried dad is going to think I don't love him if you say this. Okay, well, how can we word it that you would feel comfortable? And agreeing the precise wording, sometimes to the letter, I sometimes almost write it out with the child. This is what I'm going to say. And I won't say anything differently to this. This is what's going to be fed back to mum and dad together. And it's also making sure in the preparation meeting before I've met with the child that the parents aren't going to have any repercussions for the children you know there's not going to be any grilling of the children there's not going to be any consequences if the children say something they don't like and quite often children do say things I've had children talk about they don't like the way mum cooks dinner can I feed that back (laughs) Um, and you know it's what's worrying them right at that moment and um, I don't like mum and dad asking about what I do on a weekend it's private I'm a teenager I don't want them to know so there are some things I feed back that I do have to feed back with a little bit of a smile thinking well if my children were asked I feel think they'd say the same um but the really really valuable things and the things that I think help the most in child inclusive mediation are when children feed back mum and dad 
fighting about this. They think I don't hear. I do. Or mum saying horrible things about dad or dad calling mum names really upsets me. And what it does is make me think badly about myself. Now, that's a hugely powerful thing for most people to hear, a bit like we were talking about earlier, though, sometimes for a narcissist, they don't separate themselves and so they don't see it. But for some parents, they do hear that and they hear that as a a hugely influential tool in trying to decide how they're going to conduct themselves in front of their children going forward. But it's all completely without prejudice. So what I'm not going to ever do a report to the court and what the children say isn't going to be fed back to anybody else. It's only going to be a verbal feedback to the parents, which means it's a really safe space for the children and it's a really safe space for the parents as well. If you're wondering whether your partner really is a narcissist, please do check out my online course, Is My Partner a Narcissist? Knowing for Sure. And if you want to understand narcissistic behaviours, you may be interested in my Demystifying the Narcissist online course. Both are available on drsapria.com. See, again, I'm sort of, I'm always looking for the holes. Yeah, of course. Um, because, you know, um, we're dealing with narcissists yeah. and they don't follow the rules. And, they you know, they don't think like non-narcissistic people. So, you know, you said about there's an agreement that the parents won't take out anything on the children as a result of, of what they've said in child-inclusive mediation. I mean, again, I can see an issue with that because I can see a narcissist, yeah. you know, with their false persona of Disney dad or Disney mom saying, of course not, I'd never do that. But then actually undermining that themselves and, and, and doing exactly that. With a narcissist, I can't actually see that not happening to be honest yeah and and that's always a risk but I mean that if that is a concern and if that's something the other parent is aware of and has seen during the marriage that's a reason for them to veto the the child inclusive mediation option unless both parents agree and the child agrees it doesn't happen and so one parent saying yes absolutely and no there wouldn't be any repercussions but the other parent thinking I'm sure there would be I don't think this would be a good idea that's it the non-narcissistic parent will always have the opportunity to evaluate whether actually giving the child the voice outweighs Absolutely. the possible damage that may be going on, which damage, of course, is probably happening in any event. Mm. And therefore, if the voice of the child um, providing that view, the child's view, um, is, is going to help within the context of the parent's issues and mm. help to an extent that overshadows the already ongoing damage that, that may be beneficial. That. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sometimes it is really difficult to balance, but at, at the end of the day, the parents, so both of them, have to make that decision together. That's that's mm. the important point. And so um, sometimes for the person who's coping with and having lived with a narcissist and is separating from a narcissist, um, that's, that's a powerful point for them because that, that gives them some power in the process in the sense of, okay, well, I'm going to make a decision now. Is this the right thing for my child or, or not? And also for the child. I mean, the child may say no because they're aware they've been subjected to that behavior for the last however many years of their life. And they think, well, it's all well and good this mediator saying that 
it's a safe space and there won't be repercussions. I know there will be, so I don't want to meet them. I think especially if they're living with the parent Absolutely. who suffers from NPD. And I, I think there's a, a danger of us making an mm. assumption that it, it tends to be dad and it tends to be the person that the child or children don't live with. And often nothing could be further from the truth. Absolutely. Um, the, 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 the closet narcissist is very often the mother yeah. Uh, yeah. and yeah. very often presents as as not being so and children are survivors they mm. know you know that they, they don't want their day-to-day life disrupted by mm. um you know what they may have said to to momentarily help a situation when they know full well that that, that the next weeks months or however long are, are going to be miserable as a consequence so you know, all these factors that we have to take into account yeah, and that's when it's always quite interesting when a child does say no uh, to or when a child says, no, I don't want this fed back or no, I'm, I'm not sure I feel comfortable even meeting with a mediator because for most children and, and particularly children of a certain age, the opportunity to say what they think and shout it out loud is something they would cease to, to do, mm-hmm. particularly when yeah. parents are, are separating. And so mm-hmm. to say no, it, why? Well, what's the, what's mm-hmm. the reason for the no? I think also one of the parents, whether it's mum or dad, whoever isn't the narcissistic partner, the one who hasn't got the NPD, they sometimes know that that child is suffering, but they're not saying anything. And they see sometimes the child inclusive mediation as an opportunity to give the child an opportunity to talk to somebody that's completely removed from all of the authorities, all of the GP, the other professionals, somebody completely independent and they agree because they're hoping the child is going to say something and ask for some help. Because you sometimes think that children will talk to their teacher or trusted other individuals or somebody else in the family like grandma or granddad. But sometimes when they have been living a life of real stress because they are exposed to it day in, day out, sometimes it's just somebody completely impartial that they've never spoken to before that they will tell these things to. And knowing who else is out there to support people? You know, where to direct people to? Where can they get the support they need? Because we're mediators. We're not the professionals that can provide if it's mental health support or whatever support it is that they need. We shouldn't think of ourselves as working in a vacuum. You know, we're one part of a much bigger picture where other people can come in and provide support as well. Rachel, that might be a good moment to just raise. Um, of course, it's not just about the impact that NPD has on the couple, but also the professionals, the lawyers, the mediators who work with them. And we know that there's a huge impact on family law professionals who are working day in, day out with individuals such as these. And and the fact that because those who suffer from NPD are so poor at maintaining relationships that actually the percentage of individuals who we see in our daily work is is a much higher percentage than the average of about 5% of the population suffering from this. But what have you done about working with lawyers and the stresses and strains that they suffer when undertaking this kind of work? I really enjoy mentoring lawyers. And so part of our business is providing that support for family lawyers. Um, I I specialise in supporting family lawyers, having been 
a family lawyer myself for over 30 years, recognising it can be an extremely stressful job dealing with all sorts of different people, circumstances, not just pressures from clients, actually pressures from firms and targets and, you know, all, all of these things that that lots of lawyers cope with. But I do think family lawyers um, can carry a lot of the cases around with them if they're not careful. They may not think that they are, but sometimes it can hit a pinch point or a pressure point in particular, when you're dealing with people's families and breakups and emotions, it's a very personal job, I think we do. And we have to talk to people at all different stages of the recovery cycle going through the divorce process. And they don't really in any way prepare you for that. When you're doing your law degree, or any other degree and you convert and then you do your other training and yes firms do offer training programs but um, I think that there's now much more awareness of mental health and people thinking "Mm, I'm I'm not sure this is quite right uh, in terms of the way I'm feeling or I'm getting up I'm not really enjoying my job or I'm really worrying about talking to client x whoever it may be because i find those conversations really stressful or the situation stressful or the court case really stressful and it must be such valuable work to do because i you know i like you i've I've worked in this business for 30 odd years and the number of individuals whom we must have seen over that time and the different experiences that they've had it does leave a little bit of you behind when you're dealing with that kind of work yeah and i think there's that side of the job and the profession and the recognition of the difficult work that people do that they want to do you know largely because they they enjoy it and they want to help support people and families but I think on the other side, you've also got the competing interest of the firms that people work in and trying to get them to recognise what, what it is to be a family lawyer and targets. I think also for, for junior lawyers, though, um, you know, you mentioned about targets and, and, and so on. And, and of course, when you've got junior lawyers who are very much torn between the job that they're doing their client and also the need to hit those targets month in month out and and um to explain why they haven't on a regular basis can be a a real pressure yeah and I've seen that a lot firms set the targets I understand why the targets need to be there of course I do they're running a business I think that the problem comes if people aren't hitting the targets and then that creates its own stress and if you're trying to do a stressful job but in tandem with that, you're also worrying about the fact you didn't hit target last month and you've got to have a, a meeting with your supervisor about why that didn't happen. Actually, the people that can make the difference there are the supervisors, the leaders of businesses. But it's people who maybe come to mentoring, giving them the skills to have that conversation as well. It comes around to the point about, um, you know, we've said don't give uh, the client with NPD to your junior assistant. And if you sort of follow the track through, you You've got the client who has that personality who will probably want to have the junior assistant because they want to keep their fees down because actually they're seeing prolonged litigation. As you rightly said, Rachel, earlier, they still have not so deep pockets to fund legal fees where it's seen as unnecessary. So they're going to invite the opportunity for the junior lawyer to deal with it, who is consequentially less experienced, more likely to have rings run around them and suffering the pressures 
of the target that they have within their firm. And this is a case which is more likely to go to court. So all of the pressure of that, if you put all of that into a mix, it's quite a toxic environment for the not very experienced lawyer um, to be dealing with. And I think as, as firms, it's so easy if you don't understand the nature of the client to throw that case in the direction of the wrong fee earner with all the sort of run-on difficulties um, because, you know, they're, they're the person that's most likely to complain. Think about the impact that that has on a young lawyer who, um, you know, is then suffering from a, a complaint to the ombudsman and the effect that that has. They are the client who's unlikely to pay their bill. And sadly, junior solicitors are the first not always to get money on account when they should do because they don't quite have that confidence to ask for the big numbers at an early stage. And it it sort of becomes perpetuating. So those who are running family practices or family departments really do need to understand the type of individuals that we potentially deal with before they start allocating the work at all. I have a point to make about this, which is regarding this this issue of targets. I mean, the narcissist is going to be sending ranting accusatory letters via their solicitor or if they're an LIP, you know, straight to their former partner's solicitor. And that former partner is going to feel that they need to justify and explain and counter some of the things that they're being accused of. And obviously that runs up costs, really, really big costs. And that kind of plays into the whole targets thing, because the lawyer might then feel that responding to all of these points that the narcissist has sort of sent to them um, is obviously going to increase their costs and it will help them to reach their targets. That's helping the firm, but it's not actually helping the client. And I think that goes a little bit towards the junior lawyer versus senior lawyer point, because a senior lawyer would have the confidence to say when dealing with litigation like that, there's no point replying. It's not going to help your case. It's not going to help anything at all. There's just going to be another reply come back. It's not going to be referred to, you know, this isn't a point that a judge is going to be concerned about or it will be dealt with in a statement. Dealing with it in correspondence isn't helpful. So the more senior, the more experienced lawyer would have the knowledge how to deal with that kind of issue, whereas the more junior lawyer is going to feel more pressured, just like you say, to reply, which is going to increase the fees, which is going to build them up, whereas the more senior lawyer is going to know that you don't have to keep building the fees because actually a good lawyer the fees build themselves you, you know you're, you're doing the work you don't need to create work uh, mm-hmm. you're doing it but I think that's a really good point on on the kind of management of those cases to the right fee and like Karen was saying yeah Rachel and Claire thank you so much for joining us today it's been so interesting Lovely thank you so much you. thank you enjoyed it thank you my brand new book Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out now and is also available as an audiobook. And for more resources, please do visit my websites, thelifedoctor.org and drsapria.com.